Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 8. We'll read one verse in that great chapter. Ezra 8 verse 21. Hear now and follow along as we read the word of the Lord. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that You would give us hearts to follow. Teach us from Your Word today. Implant it within us. Change our desires into desires that honor and glorify You. It is in the mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord, who has given Himself so that we might approach You. Amen. 400 years ago yesterday, a small English cargo ship landed near Cape Cod, Massachusetts. On board that ship, called the Mayflower, 102 Puritans and pilgrims had left Plymouth, England, and after six weeks of delays in their departure because of problems on what was supposed to have been the sister ship for the voyage, named the Speedwell. With the dangerous North Atlantic storm season already begun, the decision was finally made to squeeze the passengers of both ships into a single ship because the alternative was to cancel the voyage altogether and forfeit the resources that had already been put into it. And so they decided to put 102 men, women, and children into an 80 by 20 space for the two-month voyage. I asked before the service began, the space here is about 1,200 square feet. So add about 10 feet on to the end. Maybe 20. My math is slow this morning. And imagine living in this space for 10 weeks. That is is the cramped space that they came across in. The day before they sailed, these pilgrims had an all-day church service, as was their habit. And the leader of the preachers, a man named John Robinson, preached from the very text we are considering today before bidding farewell to half his congregation as they left to go to the new world. Likewise, we are all gathered here today seeing that God has made a beginning in planting a church here. And it is an exciting day. We stand here with the decisions and the difficulties, the trials and tribulations associated with following the Lord ahead of us. Just like the pilgrims did. Just like Ezra did. And so it is quite appropriate in the providence of God that we should consider this very text as we begin our journey together into radical obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. Once Ezra had everybody, including the Levites, at the Ahava Canal, that God had called 
to go to Jerusalem, he tells us, I proclaimed a fast there. He says, in effect, I commanded that no one would eat food for a period of time. Now, if you thought it providential that we would take up this passage on the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's Landing in Massachusetts, do not ignore the providence that today we will be talking about fasting on the eve of what is, for many of us, the biggest feast of the year. This is, however, the text to which we have arrived. And in the time that God has given us, And this is the text with which we will wrestle today, praying the whole time that the Lord will illumine our hearts with understanding, fill them with love, and make them steadfast in obedience. In doing this, today we will look at the biblical teaching on fasting. And then we will look at some details of fasting and then end up with the perils of fasting. I'll warn you at the outset, the scriptural instruction is so great, I could not possibly include everything in this message. There was just too much. And so I hope to hit the most pertinent points that relate to today's text, and we'll leave it to you and to future sermons to add what may be lacking today. Because for many of us, the very idea of fasting, well, religious fasting, seems more of an artifact from bygone days. Something leaders might talk or proclaim and the people ignore. Every president through the first hundred years of our country proclaimed periods of prayer and of fasting. We'll fast for other, proceed, other things really easily. Maybe not willingly. We fast for medical procedures. How many of you have ever gone to the doctor and they said, we need you to come in fasting? We'll do that. May not like it, but we'll do it. We might fast because we are stressed or we're worried or we're just too busy at work to eat. Have you ever been so heads down in your work that you forgot to take a meal? We do that from time to time. I have even known people who fast as a weight loss plan or a weight control plan. And even though we see evidence in fasting in association with prayer throughout Scripture, we modern American Christians seem to think that is something for other people and not for us. And I'm not sure which of the two adjectives modern or American, has been more damaging to this scriptural practice. In modernity, the idea of depriving yourself of something to accompany prayer seems to smack of works. And for us Americans, where we will happily drive through restaurants at a whim for our large-sized treats, it is hard to convince us that we need to abstain from anything. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I believe that Scripture will bear me out. We often will take our needs, even our urgent needs, particularly our urgent needs to God in prayer. But unless you have fasted and prayed, 
you haven't been as serious as you could be in expecting God's answer. We can go to prayer to God for many things about the sins that conquer us so easily, about the needs of our family, the needs of our church, the needs of the community around us. And please understand, I in no way diminish the power of prayer in the least. But unless we have sought God through prayer and fasting, we aren't yet serious enough in our request. In 1 Samuel 1, when Hannah was desperately asking God for a son, we are told she wept and would not eat. That's verse 7 in that chapter. And then when God sent Eli to assure her that he had heard her prayer, it says in verse 18, she went her way and ate. When Esther's people were threatened, We are told the instruction that she gave to her cousin Mordecai in Esther chapter 4 verse 16. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you. Then I will go to the king. Even Daniel, as he sought God's answer, as he studied the book of Jeremiah, tells us in Daniel 9.3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Twice in Ezra and once in Nehemiah, there are fasts called, but we shall take those when we reach those passages. And lest you think this is only an Old Testament practice, something that passed away when the temple passed away, there are examples in the early church as well. I invite you to look at Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, where the church in Antioch, the elder, what we would call the elders, were gathered. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Two separate periods of fasting. And then, while Barnabas and Paul were on this very missionary journey, we are told in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, that when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. These are just a few examples, but I chose these examples because I want us to look at the reasons for coupling fasting with urgent prayer because the reasons were varied. There were personal needs. There were the needs of God's people. There was a need to understand God's Word. There was guidance from the Holy Spirit that was sought and prayers for the churches and the elders who led them. In each of these cases, regardless of the reason, and there are many more examples in Scripture alone, they all have one thing in common. There is an urgent need 
of something that God must provide. And for Ezra in our passage today, the needs were quite clear. The first was to set off in the right attitude, in the right spirit, the attitude of humility before God. And the second was to seek from Him a straight path, translated often a safe journey. It's an indicator of our callousness that we might be tempted to think that the second reason was the real reason they were fasting. And while the first, to humble themselves before God, rings in our ears like something of a religious ornament that is simply hung on to it. But I think we have it exactly backward. I think that the primary reason for this fast was to humble the assembly before God. Ezra and the assembly had much that could have been turned to pride. God had called each one of them. They had each one of them answered God's call. Each one of them was going to do God's work. And to men and women favored by God in His work, it is a constant temptation to think we have deserved the honor or that we were anything more than servants that God has chosen and equipped. To look at the things that God has done through our hands, we are tempted to exclaim in our pride, look what we have wrought. It ceases to become God's work if we don't do it in God's way and for God's glory. And so Ezra proclaimed a fast to remind us of our weakness and dependence upon God Himself. We remember that when Jesus had fasted in the desert where He was tempted, the first temptation of the enemy was that He turned the stones to bread. In response, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. We see this incident in Matthew 4.4, where He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' greatest need was what proceeds from God, not what He could provide for Himself. Our greatest need demonstrated to the deepest part of our soul in fasting is for what proceeds from God as well. John Piper in his excellent book on fasting, A Hunger for God, makes the following point. He freely admits that our daily bread is a provision that God makes to us on the basis of what Jesus instructed us to pray in the model prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And this provision is good. But then he says, fasting then is not a no to the goodness of food or the generosity of God in providing it. Rather, it is the way of saying from time to time that having more of the giver surpasses having the gift. Can I say that again? 
We need more of the giver. Even if it means that we, for a time, give up the gift. This leads us to the question in our practical minds. What good does fasting do? How does it work? At its heart, fasting is abstaining from something that is otherwise good and necessary. Food and sometimes water, as we saw, are the most common things for this practice, but other things may be removed for the sake of prayer as well. The common factor in all of these things, though, is that it should be something that is otherwise good or allowable and that we are reluctant to give up. If it's not a good or allowable thing, it's sinful anyway and should be removed permanently from your life, not simply as a result of a fast. I've seen many who suggest that we should fast from television for a while. But often the things that we're fasting from, we probably ought not to have turned on in the first place. The second factor was a reluctance to give it up. If we don't feel reluctance in that temporary loss, are we really depriving ourselves of anything? There are many who would gladly deprive themselves of broccoli and Brussels sprouts but would be quite reluctant to abstain from desserts or coffee or from entire meals. I would warn you not to get hung up on how fasting helps because that's what we think in our practical mind. What is this psychological thing that's going on? How is fasting doing good things for us? Don't worry about whether the hunger drives you to feel closer to God or to be more thankful or to simply give you more time to pray. If your eyes are on those temporal effects, they will not be on the need or the needs you bring before God, which are the entire reason for fasting in the first place. All the way through the fast, keep your eyes on what you are asking from God. And don't give a thought to what fasting is doing for you. Don't ask if you'll be more disciplined because you have buffeted your body. You probably will. But if that becomes your focus, you fall into the same trap of doing this for some earthly benefit to yourself. And so the question comes, when should we fast? Certainly, I recommend fasting when there are answers you urgently seek from God. But something could be said for the fact that there are so many needs around us. People who are dying outside the gospel. Personal needs to destroy besetting sin urgent needs that we have on, beh- on behalf of ourselves or others. And because of this constant flow of needs, the practice of old and the practice of the early church was to set aside a day or two every week in concentrated prayer and fasting 
for those things. The early church fathers, in a document from the late first century called the Didache, recommended Wednesday and Friday to be good days for the practice. Really, they said, you can choose any day you want, except the Lord's Day. Because that is a day of celebration, not of depriving. I remember when I was a teenager, somebody dragged me to a conference. I'll not call the fellow's name. But he claimed that when he saw God providing the manna, you remember that he gave manna for six days and told them they would not gather manna on the seventh, that they should have what was left over from the sixth, that they would gather a double portion. He claimed that that was so the people of Israel would learn to fast on the seventh day. And I find that the Scripture would militate against that. Because when we come together to worship God, when we come together to celebrate His goodness and His provision, that is not the day for fasting. That is the day to celebrate the bridegroom who is with us. But fasting, while intensely personal in its practice, is often declared for a group as it was at the assembly at the Ahava Canal or for the church, sometimes even for a nation. In these cases, special guidance or mercy is sought from God, affecting more than a single individual. And when these fasts are undertaken... It is important to understand that in most scriptural cases, the form of the fast is not specified. A fast can mean skipping one or more meals. It could mean reducing the amount that you put on your plate at a meal or removing beloved items from it. For many, there are medical situations to consider, insulin amounts to adjust, and etc. And so you will have to judge for yourself whether you are depriving yourself in a fast, but do it safely. At one time, I was led in my heart to abstain from warm water in my daily shower for six months. Others have given up other good things. I don't say that for my own benefit, just as an example. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul acknowledges that married couples might even abstain from sexual relations for a period of time. Where he says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so we have looked at the methods of fasting. We've looked at the reasons for fasting. I told you that there are perils of fasting. And that's where we will end up today. The first peril is that we fast to be seen by men. 
In Matthew 6.16, Jesus tells His disciples, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Whenever we allow the least idea that we would be thought of as more spiritual, even when we're just congratulating ourselves, we are compromising the fast itself. It doesn't mean that others must not know. It's hard to fast and your family not realize it. They live with you and they know what your habits are. And also if a group agrees to fast, they would certainly know that everybody is fasting. The point is that we don't do it to be seen by others. It's not the purpose in our heart. Fasting, even if we're quite hungry, can be a time of joyful fellowship with God. Get up. Get dressed. Get your shower. Brush your teeth. And go and do this in the joy of the Lord. The second peril is that we fast to improve ourselves somehow. Fasting and prayer is not a weight loss program, a personal improvement program, or a self-discipline exercise. And as I said before, removing your eyes from the goal of God's glory and of knowing Him more will remove the spiritual benefits you might otherwise realize. Fasting accompanies your prayer. The third peril of fasting is that we use it to feed our own sin. And there are two ways we can do that. There are others. Two that I will bring out. The first is, there are some people with eating disorders. Fasting is not an excuse to practice an eating disorder. That is just as sinful. It is also not some sort of penance that you do to remove the guilt of sin in your life. Because the guilt of sin in your life was removed by Jesus Christ alone. The deprivation of fasting is not about paying for your sin. If the concern of your heart, even if the reason you're fasting is because of a sin that keeps conquering you over and over again, and you've drawn a line in the sand and you said, God, I am going to seek you in prayer. I am going to fast until you remove the sin from me. The fast that you perform is not a penance for that sin. It is a plea to God for His aid through the Holy Spirit, to remove that sin from you along with its temptation and to remove it for good. It has nothing to do with you making up for sin with pain. The final peril we'll talk about today is the one that I think is the most sneaky Because some will fast because they believe it coerces God to respond. 
that because I have given up a meal or two or a week's worth, God must respond to me. There's an excellent chapter in Isaiah 58. It talks about fasting. And I encourage you all to read this short chapter in your Bible during your Bible reading time this week. In it, the people complain to God at the beginning of verse 3. And what is their complaint? They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They were pleading that their self-sacrifice had earned them God's consideration. And his reply is the rest of the chapter. But hear how it begins. In the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, God says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Fasting in prayer is not a hunger strike. It deserves nothing. And God may choose in His sovereignty to deny your request. We see that in 2 Samuel 12, 16, where we are told that David sought God on behalf of the child And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. On behalf of the child born of the adulterous union between him and Bathsheba, David fasted from food and from his soft bed. And he had already been told God's word by the prophet Nathan, the child will die. And though David sought God in fasting and desperate prayer, God's will was done. And so we do not believe that fasting coerces God to anything. It is always a plea to God. A plea from the most urgent place in our hearts. One final thing. I urge you all to be in urgent prayer for our church and the decisions that we will be making in the coming days. There's much to do. And we want to be entirely in line with God's will. And so with that in mind, I ask you all to make a fast this Tuesday to seek God on this very thing. You may take to Him whatever needs you need to deal with. But pray for this church. We are at a beginning. We are sitting here at the Ahava Canal. And we, I want you to pray that God will establish and will make faithful the members and leadership of this church. I will plan to fast from dawn to dusk, not eating anything during that period of time. I encourage you 
to participate in whatever way you're able. While the sun is shining on this Tuesday to be in prayer for our church here. And I also invite you to apply yourself to urgent prayer to pray for each other, for the needs of ourself and of those around us. There are a lot of people out here who don't know Jesus. Let's storm the gates of heaven with a plea for God to carry His gospel into this community. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us to pray with our whole hearts, with our whole beings, with everything that we have to bring to You. Not because we deserve anything or because we buy Your favor. We have received Your favor in full in Jesus Christ. And yet we would do all that we could foregoing a meal here, a day's worth of meals there, for the exceeding greatness of being closer to our great Lord, our great Savior, and our great God. Amen.